Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. This episode is brought to you by Epsilon and their award-winning People Cloud loyalty solution. I'm always delighted to have Epsilon on board as a sponsor, and particularly today as they were just named a leader in the Forrester Wave Loyalty Solutions Q2 2021 report with the top score in the current offering category. This report is designed to help you as marketeers find the perfect partner for your loyalty program. So to download your copy of the report, visit epsilon.com forward slash let's talk loyalty. So today's interview is with Dr. Anil Pillai, who I came across recently when he was a keynote speaker at the Customer Fest virtual conference held in India. Now, Dr. Anil has a PhD based on his extraordinary work and research into cognitive, behavioral and human sciences. And I love his experience and perspective as he works across India, Europe and the Middle East. Now, Anil has helped some of the world's biggest companies to understand their customers and not just from a transactional perspective that so many of us really focus on, but also really understanding the emotional context from a deep understanding of the human psyche and how that translates into engagement with our customers. So, I really thought what a great way to understand and help build our customer loyalty. So, Dr. Anil Pillai, please tell me, what are your favorite loyalty statistics? All right. So, I have two of them for you, Paula. Mm. Uh, one is uh, uh, very interesting. 81% of customers trust recommendations from their family and their friends as opposed to stories or uh, propositions that come to them from brands and companies. Okay. Uh, that's one. And the other one is... Uh, very interestingly, 78% of customers say they're not loyal to any one brand. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> you know, and here we are thinking we're doing fantastic work, Anil. Um, that's pretty shocking if 78% um, and Nielsen obviously is a global organization. So for them to conclude that, um, I suppose on the positive side, it means there's lots of work for those of us in the industry. But I guess for the brands right. that are listening, it's probably a little disappointing. Um, right. So there's loads to explore, Anil. Um, I think what I loved from when we first met is uh, purely the extraordinary um, both academic and, I suppose, business commercial experience that you have, um, really about this whole topic of the behavioral approach to loyalty. Um, So I will ask you to define that in a second. But even before I get into that, actually, what I picked up from from one of your your own websites, um, and I know you have a number of brands which we'll talk about, but you're based in India. And India currently has a population, I checked, of 1.366 billion. <laughs> which is four times the population of the United States, where my main audience is actually listening. Um, but what also interested me, Anil, is um, I believe India currently is about sixth in the world from an economic perspective, but projected to grow to third position. So it really seems to me that the consumer appetite is growing exponentially in India. So we have a lot to learn from you. So with that kind of background and context, please tell me and our listeners all about what is this idea of a behavioral approach to loyalty? 
Right. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that, Paula. Before that, uh, the, 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 the work that I do straddles between Europe and, uh, and, in, and Asia and India. So it gives me a very unique perspective on how consumers uh, behave in a market like Germany or the Netherlands yeah. or Scandinavia yeah. and and how they behave in a country like India, yeah. right? So, and, and it's very fascinating given the background that you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, we, but you know, having said that, coming, coming to the question that you asked me on behavioral loyalty, at heart, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a human engagement person uh, uh, you know, a focused person. That's that's really where my interest lies. Why do humans behave the way they do? Okay. Why do we Why do we take the decisions that we may take? Mm. Uh, what is our interpersonal relationship in groups and as individuals? Mm. Uh, so, human engagement is what I'm all about. And for me, uh, when I look at loyalty, I go back to what we were as humans, mm. uh, as we evolved uh, from the different versions of of where we are today as Homo sapiens. Yeah. And, uh, and to me, it all lies, the way we react, the way we make our decisions, it's, it's all wired, uh, very basic to our very basic being. Yes. Uh, the need to survive. Yeah. Uh, the need to thrive as a species. Yeah. The need to thrive as a tribe. Yeah. Uh, the propagation of oneself and one's DNA and the, and the propagation of one's, one's uh, tribe's DNA. Okay. Right? Essentially, that's what we are all about. And it manifests itself in some very fascinating ways in the business world. Yeah. Right. Uh, so when I look at behavioral loyalty, uh, when I look at the behavioral dimensions of loyalty, there are three things that come to my mind, and that's what we'll kind of focus on today. Mm-hmm. One, one, one is one is what I call as attitudinal loyalty or emotional loyalty. Okay. Right. Yes. The other is what I call as behavioral loyalty or transactional loyalty. Sure. Right. Yeah. And the third thing that we're going to talk about is 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 the community, the creation of tribes and, and communities. Oh, brilliant! So to me, these are, these are the three. Three very important aspects of loyalty, yeah. uh, as seen from a behavioral lens. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so when one talks about behavioral loyalty or transactional loyalty, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's the loyalty that that you exhibit when you when you go and shop at a grocery store that's on your way home from work. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a transactional ease that's there because that person is on your on your way, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't have to really go searching for another grocer. Yeah, it's simply that much more convenient. Okay, right? Yeah, that transactional loyalty, or that's what we call as behavioral loyalty. Mm-hmm. Attitudinal loyalty or emotional loyalty is when you go out of your way to seek a brand. You go out of your way. You put yourself to some amount of effort, mm. right, and seek something out for yourself, yeah, right? Yeah. That's because there's an emotional connect and we'll talk about it as we go along. Mm. And uh, the third part is community. You know, it may surprise you, human beings are not wired to be loyal. Wow. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, and and I know I know this is going to be a little... <laughs> it's shocking, um, I'm afraid now. Out there, <laughs> but we are not. Uh, we are not. You know why? Because uh, we have something wired into us called the seeking behavior. We like to seek things out. Okay. Right. There was a wonderful, wonderful experiment done by somebody called Jan Panskep, a scientist whom I admire a lot. Yeah. Uh, I he's passed on. So Jan, Jan actually put uh, rats in a little maze. And uh, he, what he did, he and his team, is uh, they would, inc- you know, incrementally increase the amount of pain that's inflicted on the, on the rats. Of course, it's a little cruel, but, yeah. you know, he did that. 
and and he would find you know, and he would see and he would put a little piece of chocolate or cheese at the end of the maze and find out how much effort does a rat put in to go and get that piece of cheese or chocolate right okay. and yeah. so despite the amount of increasing pain the rat would still go and seek the chocolate out would seek the cheese out simply because the, the cheese and chocolate gave a dopamine rush in the in the in the rat's brain so and then of course it led to a larger bigger study so the the, the point is that we are wired to seek we have seeking behavior mm-hmm. the only and therefore loyalty is not something that's inherently wired in us as in our primordial brains mm. but this flips when we are in a tribe ah. we like to, we like to stick to a tribe because the tribe gives us safety yeah. it ensures survival yeah. it ensures that we can navigate yeah. dinosaurs tyrannosaurus and you know the, all the other um, uh, antediluvian monsters out there sure. and the modern world it gives us a sense of security okay. so that's the reason why community is so much very so very important wow. and to my to my utter um, this may a lot of professionals for some reason don't seem to see that yes yes well i think increasingly the listeners of this show are are hearing it anil um you're perhaps the most academically qualified but uh, but actually not the first to to, to say uh, particularly this point about community so i definitely want to explore it some more i think as an industry there's a lot being said about um, moving beyond the transactional side and if i'm right that's probably what's leading to the um the Nielsen uh, statistic you quoted earlier so 78% say they're not loyal to a brand but in fact they are behaving in a loyal way so we're getting a certain amount of complacency and a certain amount of yeah it's just happens to be the best of of a bad lot perhaps um but i i suppose it also gives insight what you were talking about there you know flipping in a tribe um this whole piece around you know the safety and security of you know the recommendation from customers because i really think um that emotional loyalty piece is absolutely extraordinary and it's a fascinating way that i think more and more brands really need to think about um so any case studies or 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 suggestions you have on that side would definitely be be very welcome uh, but even before that as well anil you told me off air um just a really nice again i suppose simple thing about the difference between i think it's you know a fool goes seeking pleasure seeking happiness um but the wise man seeks to uh, avoid pain so um reducing friction i think is the business uh, version of of avoiding pain so i'd love if you explain that concept a bit for listeners you know uh, an inordinate amount of time and money has been spent by brands uh, and loyalty professionals uh, trying to uh, create pleasure for their customers yeah um, and uh, to my and uh, it's fine i mean it's it's very good to create pleasure but not at the cost of ignoring the pain yeah. that is there in the customers lives yeah so you know between pain and pleasure uh, human beings will always seek to eliminate pain first that's the way, again that's the way we are wired okay, right okay okay uh, wonderful example uh, that i that that uh, i uh, i've always been taught that you can take the world's most beautiful woman to a movie theater Uh, but you will not enjoy the movie if you have a bad molar uh, ache right <laughs> you're too very, very painfully you're not going to enjoy the movie however pleasurable the movie is however pleasurable the companionship is you're in pain yes. you have to eliminate that pain first yes organizations and brands need to understand that when when we talk about behavioral loyalty uh, behavioral loyalty actually uh, has three components to it one it requires ubiquity you it just needs to be there the brand has to be there the product has to be there it has to be just available up 
front. For sure. Right? Yeah. The grocers on your way home to work mm-hmm. is because there is ubiquity. Mm-hmm. The grocer is just around the corner. Mm. The second important is it has to be friction free. You have to eliminate all all kinds of friction mm. uh, when it comes to dealing with your customers. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to eliminating pain and friction, uh, our, our, the topmost reaction is let's eliminate physical pain, physical friction, right? Okay. Let's make it from a physical standpoint. Mm. But that's not how friction works. There are three elements to friction. Mm. Uh, there's physical friction or physical effort. Mm-hmm. There is time effort or temporal effort, mm-hmm. the time that you to solve a problem to uh, to get your objective and then there is cognitive effort yeah, right yeah. cognitive effort is when you put so much pressure on the customer's working memory mm-hmm. that the customer is completely frazzled and therefore does not know how to react yeah remember the the human brain can at best keep four to seven things in their working memory okay right wow Beyond that, we just we just can't hold hold <laughs> that many items in memory. yeah but look at look how confusing we make uh, things for our customers in terms of choices, yeah. uh, in terms of the amount of information that we present on screen. Mm. Uh, so, so this is this all adds to or or the language in which things are framed, mm. right? Mm. Uh, so this is really uh, uh, you know. Uh, Again, there's a very nice experiment that was conducted many years ago at Vanderbilt University, where uh, people were put under an fMRI and they were actually given uh, cognitively difficult tasks to perform mm. and uh, and their brain reading was taken. And you know it's very interesting. So when you're actually doing cognitively tough tasks like reading unintelligible contracts or reading things with half information, your brain actually signals to you the same reaction if, as if I if I pricked you with a pin. Wow. In the, 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 yeah, the, the, the part of the brain that gets affected is something called the insula. And the insula reacts exactly the same way as if I had inflicted physical pain on you. Wow. Now, this, this is underestimated by organizations. We just do not underestimate the amount of cognitive pain we put our customers through. We focus on making things faster. Mm. That's temporal time effort. Mm. We focus on taking physical effort, but we don't understand cognitive effort. Yeah. That's because we don't measure cognitive effort. And the only way you can actually measure something like cognitive effort is to use consumer neuroscience. And that's what we've been doing over the last decade. Mm. And you use consumer neuroscience. So you, when I say neuroscience, people's eyes glaze over. Yeah. They think of the white-coated lab yeah. attendance, fMRI, but that's not how it works. You have many, many, many methods uh, using consumer neuroscience. Mm. We, for example, done a very interesting uh, case where we there is this organization that actually processes visas all all across the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they process visas in 120 different countries. Okay. Uh, they, they came to us and said, uh, "Can you figure out how to eliminate friction in the visa processing journey for a customer okay. uh, who's from, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa mm. to London, mm. for example, sure. right? or Beijing to Dubai?" Mm. Uh, so. We looked at this globally, mm-hmm. uh, we, and we did the study uh, over 118 countries, uh, 10 million consumers or 10 million travelers mm. uh, in 22 different languages. Wow. Uh, we, ran, we ran a consumer neuroscience plus data study on where exactly is the cognitive friction, mm. which part of the customer journey uh, is, is the friction at the highest, where exactly is the temporal friction or the time friction, where exactly is the physical friction. And we re-engineered the entire process, both on the digital journey as well as the physical journey. Wow. And, and fascinating results, you know, very, very fascinating. Things that you you assumed um, uh, were, were friction-free, suddenly you found out that Customers couldn't understand how a visa form was structured in a certain manner. Yeah. Why was it structured in a certain manner? Because there was no transparency, and hence 
anxiety, hence cognitive effort. Yeah. So, so that's the second. So friction is the second part mm. of, of being of transactional loyalty. And the third is usually transactional loyalty has an exit barrier. A, a bank that you've been dealing with for the last two decades, a telecom company whom you find it difficult to leave. Mm. Now, when loyalty professionals measure data from loyalty, what you're actually doing is you're actually measuring data from trans- behavioral transactional loyalty. Sure. And you don't count exit barrier, you don't discount friction, you don't discount ubiquity. Yeah. And therefore you put a very, let's say, not not so right picture mm. of, of loyalty. So that's really how friction fits in. And uh, uh, the, the, the consumer neuroscience-based uh, framework that I was talking to you about was a framework called EASE. Yes. Uh, play on the words of E-A-S-E, EASE, E-A-S. Yes. Effort as uh, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's been a pretty interesting, and uh, uh, we've, we've done it for financial services, we've done it for visas, we've done it for manufacturing, we've done it for healthcare, yeah. a whole bunch of different industries. Yeah. And you broke up there, so I'll just repeat the name, Anil, for listeners. And of course, we'll make sure to uh, to connect in, in the show notes as well. But uh, EAS, so the uh, effort assessment score is the framework okay. that you guys have developed um, really yeah. to understand, as you said, that the combination of the physical, cognitive um, and time effort required in order to, yeah. I suppose, achieve success uh, and by implication to achieve loyalty. So um, I also know that that work was presented by Mr. Don Peppers, who is obviously a world famous speaker on the subject of customer experience. And I think what I'm hearing coming through from you, Anil, is is really that um, loyalty has to be um, seen through the lens, I suppose, of customer experience. And I've briefly touched on that in a couple of shows in the past. Um, I love the insights of neuroscience. Um, I I probably glaze over a little bit because I don't understand it, uh, but I definitely have a passion um, to understand how neuroscience can be brought into loyalty. Um, And it's exactly the reason, I suppose, I wanted you on the show today to to really bring that, uh, that opportunity uh, for listeners, absolutely. Uh, like I said, eliminating friction is is uh, and the two points you made very important points. One is uh, loyalty and customer experience now are are inseparable. Yeah. Uh, you can't really now have uh, these little compartments anymore. Sure, that's one. And the other thing is eliminating friction is not just a component of customer experience. It's also a very important component of loyalty engagement. Of course, right? Yeah. For example, you take you take the area that customer uh, loyalty professionals focus the largest, and that's on customer recognition. Mm-hmm. Look at the customer recognition journey, right? Which includes uh, onboarding a customer uh, with where they, with their welcome kits, mm. uh, their points reward system, the way they are gifted, the way they are rewarded. This is a journey in itself. If this is a high friction journey, I will not be loyal to, despite how many points I've accumulated or how many, yeah. uh, how. How good is the reward system? Yeah. Now, very, very few loyalty practitioners actually map their loyalty journey, mm-hmm. and very few, and much fewer of them actually look at eliminating friction in that loyalty journey. Yeah. So, eliminating friction is not a comp- simply a component of of their customer journey, but it's also a component of the loyalty journey. Mm. 
And in my experience, Anil, um, again, I'm sure everybody listening is a very well-intentioned professional loyalty practitioner. And certainly the programs I worked on, um, we would probably have mapped our customer loyalty journey at the outset. So when we first designed the program. But what I do believe really does happen, and I think it's a really important point you're mentioning is, you know, three, four, five, or 10 years later, how has that customer loyalty journey evolved? And, you know, I really think there's an important opportunity to go back and reassess, you know, how is the design now working? How is the experience of loyalty um, in its structured format? How is that coming through? So, so I definitely agree with you. And again, with the best will in the world, I think we're all so busy, um, but it's important to, to touch on these things, you know, regularly over, over the, the loyalty program's journey. Absolutely. I, I give you an example. Uh, we were working with a very, very large global bank. Uh, and they have this loyalty program for their very top end of their customers, the top maybe 5 7% of their customers. Okay. Now, you, you, one would imagine that these are very important customers who accumulate a lot of points because they're global travelers and so on and so forth. Sure. Now, we found a very interesting thing. The, the, the bank had a process where the minute you hit a certain number of points, let's say 100,000 points, uh, their, their outbound marketing team would start calling up those customers, wanting to know if those 100,000 points can be converted into a higher graded uh, card or a higher graded bank offer, a product of the bank. Okay. Now, this, this is very irritating. If I had 100,000 points, I know what to do with them. I don't want you to keep calling me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, this like a very trivial example, but when we ran, uh, when we were doing this loyalty journey, friction elimination yeah. uh, process uh, design, we found a lot of customers were very irritated that the outbound of the of the bank was calling them to sell a product, trading in their own hard-earned points. They saw it like the bank trying to cash in on their hard-earned loyalty points wow. and make more money out of them. Yeah. Now look look at the implicit thinking and the bias that customers were carrying. Yeah. Whereas this have been the intention of the bank mm. you're right yeah yeah and the intention again usually starts in a really good place but um you know to actually go and talk to the customer and see if that's what they're experiencing particularly if these are vvip customers and it's uh you're doing damage to the loyal relationship by, by what you're saying yeah and this nobody notices because this goes on and on and on yeah and because you process yeah and and then when we presented this uh, the, v, the VP who was heading the loyalty program, he actually jumped out of his chair. He said, are you sure? We said, this, this is the top three reasons why yeah. customers are irritated. They don't want to hear from your marketing team. Yeah. They don't want to hear from the sales guy trying to push them a product yeah. or their own loyalty points. Yeah, so, yeah. It's very interesting from that perspective. And actually, I do think as, as you know, I suppose external people in general, both you and I, you know, coming in to advise companies, uh, sometimes we have the blessing of being able to say things um, that maybe internal people have been expressing as well in terms of knowing what the issues might be. But yes, uh, I think the validation, doing the research and getting the customer perspective, feeding it back to those kind of senior people um, gives it a credibility. It needs to be heard in a very explicit way way to make sure that the action is taken. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we spoke about friction uh, and, and it's a correlation with, uh, with transactional loyalty and behavioral loyalty. Yeah. Now, let me, let me flip this a little bit and talk to you a little bit about uh, what are the three things, you know, to my mind, there are three things that are very key for emotional loyalty. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, what is, of course, 
you know, you have to be, you know, you, there has to be ubiquity, there has to be a friction-free in your in your purchase process, etc. But there are three very important things based on the work that we've done. Mm. One is customer involvement. Uh, is it, you know, how aligned is a brand to me? And I'll give you a very good example of this. Recently, I mean, we all know this example, Burger King, uh, when the pandemic uh, was at its peak in the first wave, yeah. actually put out data uh, on, on Twitter, where they actually told customers, uh, please go and buy products from other fast food, quick service restaurants, including McDonald's, right? Because this is a time when you have to show support to all your brands, just not to Burger King, wow. right? That was a summary of the letter. Yeah. And they, and they ended the letter with, uh, you know, buying a, a Whopper, which is a Burger King product yeah. is great, but a Big Mac is not so bad either. Oh, right? wow. So ended it, right? Yeah. I will not believe uh, the kind of uh, reaction that came in from consumers. Yes. Uh, there, there's, there's a particular consumer comment that, uh, that stayed in my mind. And the consumer said, I read through that letter. And when I reached the end, I actually had goose pimples. Oh, I could not believe yeah. that a brand would be so sensitive. Yeah. Can, can you imagine yes. the loyalty that Burger King generated at that point in time with that guy? Beautiful. Right. It's a great example. It, yeah, it is brilliant, and so you have now aligned the your interests with the with the consumers' interests. You're both in alignment and therefore in love with each other. Love it, love right? it. Yeah, so for me, this is the first and very important component mm-hmm. of of, of uh, uh, emotional or attitudinal loyalty. Okay. The second, the second component is customer empowerment. And I'm going to touch upon something called decision simplicity, which ties into what we spoke about in terms of eliminating friction. Yeah. Consumers, uh, especially in today's world, and, and, and today with the pandemic and with so much of uh, uncertainty, yeah. anxiety, and stress, people like things to be simple. Yes. And people like things to be simple, especially when it comes to making decisions, mm, right? Mm. So decision simplicity is, to, to the way I define it, is the ease with which consumers can get trustworthy information about your product. Mm. Trustworthy okay. information yeah. about your product. And the ease with which, therefore, they can make a purchase decision that they think is in their benefit. Okay. Or to their benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A trustworthy uh, information about your product doesn't come from you telling the customer what is good about your product. Sure. It comes from friends and family, which goes back to the statistic that I start off with. Yeah. 81% of customers, you know, yeah. trust recommendations from their family and friends. Yeah. Because they see that as helping in their decision simplicity journey or the decision simplicity framework. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is important. Yes. So, 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 so the thing is that uh, if you are going to create decision, decision complexity for your customer, either through your app mm. or through your website yeah. or through devices that you present, mm. right. Yeah. You are not going to generate loyalty. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a so when you look at ease and elimination of friction, one is in the customer experience. Mm. We spoke about three areas in the customer experience, mm. in the loyalty mm. journey itself, and now we're touching upon the decision simplicity or the decision journey of the customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, for those who are academically inclined, McKinsey has a great study on on decision journeys. Um, uh, and uh, you should probably uh, delve into that a little bit as to how yeah. uh, you can make simpler for your your customers in terms of them arriving at decisions. Now, 
one of the things uh, so we are the last the last 12 months uh, we've been called in by a whole bunch of global organizations to look at their apps and their digital infrastructure because everybody is going digital yeah and uh, we, and we are coming in and looking at how decision simplicity can be can be built in or how friction can be eliminated yeah and i must tell you uh, so there you know there are there are 105 or 110 different biases uh, that human beings either violate or uh, you know fall in line with the single largest rule single most violated rule of behavioral science that i have seen in the last 12 months is something called hicks law okay and hicks is the number of choices that you populate the screen with in terms of customers want having to make a choice between different options oh, okay so, yeah what is choice overload yes right it is simply astonishing how brands can be so obtuse when it comes to presenting choice to their customers uh, people do not want to be inundated with a million choices yeah. right yeah. they want you to present choices that are relevant to their context right sure so this is something that organizations are still grappling with definitely uh, again again for the academically inclined there's a lovely paper by a lady called sheena ayengar from i think harvard or stanford but sheena is a well known name in choice architecture okay. and the need to reduce choices okay right so you know eliminating choices and choice overload both on your app on your digital journey in your physical uh, uh, infrastructure is so very important yeah. uh, towards this simplicity okay. so that is the second and the third of course is customer recognition which all loyalty professionals know yes. because that's what that's their uh, that's their wheelhouse bread and butter right? for sure for yeah. sure yeah but and, yeah, yeah but that's one third of the whole game right you're you're missing on the other two <laughs> which is why you're here anil to enlighten us all um so i'll definitely again make sure that we find those papers anil and and link to them for as you said the academically minded um and just to support what you've been saying um again just looking at your own website what i realized um i i thought was a really nice point you were making was digital is often being seen as the panacea um you know to solve all of these um you know different or difficult journeys that customers are being expected to uh, to go through uh, but unfortunately that um that expectation is not always being realized and i think the point you made was you know that a lot of companies are focusing on digitalizing their current processes rather than redesigning them from a digital perspective which i thought was a very very clever insight because that's what i've seen in lots of companies i've worked in yesterday i had a meeting uh, with uh, with the head of strategy of uh, of a media house that that publishes the world's largest fashion magazine the most iconic fashion magazine and so on and so forth wow so uh, you know as the discussion was progressing uh, and uh, we were talking about uh, you know the whole thing of getting get, getting going digital so he made, the person made a very interesting comment you know he said and this was of course from the media industry but i think it applies very very well to other industries he said that uh, you know for the last 30 years professionals have been right, have been working for the print media and uh, the same professionals have, are now have to, having to work in the digital media mm-hmm. so they, they they so they think print execute in digital right totally. uh, and then, so you have you have this mindset that is that's very physical um process of physical customer customer experience oriented yeah. and now you're casting it into a digital mold yeah. right and 
transition is not that easy, right? Yeah. So, so, so what most people do is they latch onto technology as as the crutch or to or, or the or the coat hook to hang your their digital strategy on. Yeah, but that's it's a part of the story. Technology is an enabler, not really, uh, you know, yes. something that delivers. The, the, the final outcome. Absolutely. And I've heard somebody saying, actually, sometimes you just need to bring your children in, for example, so the digital natives and just, you know, ask them to, to design things or help you look at things from, through their eyes. So I think there's a, a lot to be said for that. You know, you know, one of the things that gets lost in the digital world is empathy. Yes, you're right. And, uh, and but, the, but the thing with empathy is it's, it's, a, it's, it's very amorphous, right? Uh, everybody thinks they understand empathy. Yeah. Uh, but it's not that easy to understand. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so, but I'm, you know, we won't get into the definitions of empathy. I have, I have views on that. Uh, but the interesting thing here is this: that one of the reasons why empathy doesn't get delivered is because customers feel a sense of loss of control. Okay. One of the, when we were working with with an insurance with organization, and uh, we asked them why we asked the people who there was a large bunch of people who didn't like the digital journey, and we said why. Mm. So, so it's a very interesting answer. The answer was. In the physical world, if something goes wrong, I know that I can pick up the phone and get hold of Paula, mm. right? She's a, there's a person called Paula Thomas who I can track and trace. Yeah. And if what, I can scream at and possibly <laughs> back at, but there's an interaction that can happen. Okay. In the digital world, I don't know who to catch hold of. Yeah. If something goes wrong, right? Yeah. It's, it's a number or it's a, it's a, it's a disembodied uh, chat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I really that gives me a that gives me anxiety. Okay. That gives that leads to a sense of lack lack of control. Yes. Now this is a very important insight, especially for the older folk. Totally. Loss of loss of control. Yeah. Lack of ability has a direct correlation to increase of anxiety and therefore anger and therefore dissonance with the brand. Wow. And that's probably why certainly, you know, with my consumer hat on, Anil, I'm always so much more comfortable when there is just a little, you know, assistant, you know, sitting on, on the sideline, whether or not I access it, knowing that it's live. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I think that lack of control, there's an unconscious anxiety there that I'm just like going, oh, my God, how's this going to go? <laughs> Am I going to waste, you know, half a day trying to sort something out and just end up frustrated? We, we as a species hate losing control. Yeah. We just, you know, it, we just don't like it because that, again, that's, that's, that's our primordial wiring. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like we like, we like things that are predictable, repeatable and something and, and we, we perceive we can influence. We may not be able to influence it. That's but true. At least a perception of influence. Yes. Right. Okay, wonderful. So there is one other big area, Anil, that we talked about before that I want to make sure that we um, that we bring uh, for listeners. Um, and that's the whole topic of communications and yeah. the uh, opportunity for different communication strategies um, and channels to, to really connect with customers and again, ultimately engage them and, uh, and ensure they feel loyal towards us. And I know you've done an awful lot of work, uh, certainly in one sector, um, which we're not saying is going to instantly translate for all listeners. But I thought it was fascinating that you did do a lot of research uh, within the pharma sector about how to communicate effectively for them with doctors. So um, looking at different things, the, the different forms of communication. So I'd love you to share that story. Well, uh, you know, in today's day and age, uh, when you want to influence 
somebody's opinion, when you want to influence the way they think or the way they act or the way they behave or buy, yeah. you are going to communicate with them in some way. Yeah. You, you either email or a SMS or, uh, or WhatsApp. You know, you're going to use some channel, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so brands are going to spend an enormous amount of money and energy in sending out communication uh, to their target audience. Sure. The pharmaceutical industry has been doing this for ages now mm-hmm. because for them, influencing doctors and influencing healthcare practitioners is very important in their choice of products, brands, yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but other industries um, are, are are catching up and there are, there are industries that are, again, spending enormous amounts of money. Mm. But unfortunately, today, it's all about uh, spray and pray. You, <laughs> you, you send your message out and you pray that it hits, it hits the right audience at the right time. Mm. Uh, uh, this is this is not this is something that we found is very counterproductive. It doesn't it doesn't really work uh, well. Mm. Uh, so if you look at communication, then you again I look at it from a behavioral perspective. Uh, you, you know there are two types of communication. One is what we call as prevention focused, and the other is promotion oriented mm-hmm. or promotion focused. Okay. So promotion focused communi- communication is when I come to you, Paul, and say, "Hey, this is what you gain right by working with me." Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. This is what we will make. This is what we will benefit from. Mm-hmm. That's promotion. Mm-hmm. Prevention focuses. Hey, Paula, this is what you will lose if you don't work with me. Okay. Right. Yeah. This is what you lose if you don't cash in your discount by tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so communication is of two types broadly. I'm 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 kind of summarizing it very broadly. Sure. Again, there are a lot of interesting, very academic papers out there. So, prevention focus and promotion focus. Okay. Now. How do I know whether this communication, what is polar? So each of us have a certain inclination towards promotion-focused messaging or prevention-focused messaging. Okay. And of course, context-based. Mm. So for example, in the context of money, I could be prevention-focused, but in the context of, let's say, buying new shoes or buying fa- or fashion, I could be promotion-focused. Now, how do I get to understand that context? Mm. One. Yeah. Two. Yeah. How do, I, how do I then frame my message to Paula Knowing that when it comes to money, I need to be prevention focused with Paula. But when it comes to selling fashion to her, I can be promotion focused because Paula loves to have the latest shoes, uh, you know, in in the whole of Dubai. Okay. Right. So, so, so good communication therefore has got three components to it. One is understanding the context that you're that you're communicating in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What is the context that I'm communicating in? Two. What is my, my audience? Is my audience prevention focused or promotion focused at that for that particular context? Mm-hmm. And again, we lean on consumer neuroscience uh, and data uh, for those insights. Mm-hmm. You can't go around asking people, "Are you promotion focused or, or prevention focused?" You have to actually just there are, there <laughs> discover are, that. Yeah, yeah. Assessment, right? And then, how do you like to consume information? What is your attention span? Mm. So uh, you know. So for example. I know you love this statistic a lot. <laughs> uh, the fact that, you know, in the year 2000, our attention span collectively was around 12 seconds. Uh, it went down to eight seconds in the year 2020. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the goldfish has attention span of 10 seconds, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually quite terrifying, Anil. If we have less attention available now than a goldfish, I, I don't know where to start with that. But anyway, it's a, it's oh, you know, a good point. You know, on an average, the average human being checks their phone 96 times a day. Oh, I'm sure I'm worse even than that, Anil. It's shocking. Yeah, yeah, we're totally obsessed. So therefore, yeah. therefore, attention span becomes a very important ingredient of communication effectiveness. For sure. Right? So if I'm going to send you, if I'm going to send you a 10-minute a, a video, yeah. uh, as opposed to you being some, for example, doctors in our work, we, you know, 
they have an attention span that's perhaps a couple of minutes at most. Yeah. Not because they may be busy, but it's also because they've got to absorb so much of data. Yeah. Their lives depend on absorbing, processing data on a continuous real-time basis and applying it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when you're communicating with an audience like that, yeah. you have to figure out what is the mode of communication, what is the medium of communication in terms of time, mm. right? And I'm, am I going to be prevention focused or promotion focused in the context of that particular drug product molecule for that particular doctor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Now these these components are are not 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 seen from that lens. The advertising industry understands this to to, to an extent because they have done some seminal work in that area. Yeah. But brands that that pump consumers with SMSs and reminders and WhatsApp. Uh, yeah. Uh, ticket do not understand that it this is spending a lot of money with really nothing happening mm. but i think right? uh, absolutely and what i even do um what i found was was super fascinating was because there's so much talk about video and of course you know audio um you know with my own um experience um you know really changing i suppose is the key thing so for me i'm trying to draw attention to the um the various forms of communication as a potential differentiator for loyalty which you made the point anil when we spoke before that um, certainly for doctors that video was seen actually as quite frivolous. So that to me was, I hadn't thought about the potential negatives uh, apart from the obvious of I have to sit at a computer, but actually the um, the negative association perhaps for certain audiences, I thought was a, a really important insight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for example, uh, for any, the, and the reason is that uh, your mind gets anchored uh, to certain mediums. For example, mm. uh, when I look, when, when many serious professionals from the scientific community look at content that comes on video, yeah, uh, it's for them in their mind, it's something that is to be consumed uh, as as like popcorn, mm. right? Uh, okay. you know, it, it, it has a nutritional value, but it's good fun to look at. Okay, right? Yeah. But for serious work, I will go and look at some, look at print. I'll look at text or I'll look at some other form of, yeah. of content. Brochures and yeah, yeah. We found a similar thing with WhatsApp. We found that many customers, are, so a lot of brands uh, that we work with have now moved their customer support channel to WhatsApp. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, not a bad thing, actually. It's, it's a good thing. But there are many consumers who think that WhatsApp is for friends and family and for for uh, for recreational communication. Sure. They don't, they they have an inherent barrier uh, when it comes to uh, login customer complaints. So one of the largest telecom companies that we uh, that are, I think it's present in the in the in the, in the UAE too. Yes. Uh, UK based uh, telecom company that we worked with. Yeah. Uh, they they moved they moved their entire billing customer support onto WhatsApp. Yeah. A lot of customers are not accessing the WhatsApp channel, and so, and so what did the brand do? They kept pumping advertising dollars in in popularizing the WhatsApp channel. Yeah. Uh, they tried make it more simpler. They put a chatbot, all that. Yeah. But customers WhatsApp as a relevant medium of not all, but a significant portion didn't see WhatsApp as a relevant medium for serious yes. uh, communication with the brand. Yeah. Now that, so you need to change that perception first yeah. before you spend dollars and money on trying to create a WhatsApp uh, uh, support channel. Yeah. And it may come to your point earlier, Anil, about the perception of loss of control. Um, I am a fan of WhatsApp and in most instances, it's been well executed when I've engaged. And my, my most recent example was literally going to my GP. And when I left, she gave me her WhatsApp number. And because I know it's a human being, it's not friends or family, but it's, it's extremely valuable to me. And I trust it because I know, for example, it's 
not a right. chatbot that, that that doctor is right. at the other end. So so I totally take your point. Um, and I really, again, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, I, I love the insights on the opportunity for communications as a differentiator and uh, and your experiences on that. Um, I had one final thing I wanted to touch on, Anil. Uh, I feel like we could talk for hours today. There's so much uh, insight that you have. Uh, but I know you mentioned to me uh, you do some work with the India Institute of Technology, which I know is the equivalent of MIT. And you've contributed a chapter to a book that's being recently published or about to be published, pardon me, by the School of Happiness. So I'd love to just uh, finish up by, by understanding that work that you do. Right. So, um, yeah. So the 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 uh, the digital technology has a, has a, a school called the Reiki School of Happiness, uh, and uh, they actually focus on. That's very interesting. Their research is on on how do you create happiness uh, in different facets of our lives, right? And one of them, of course, is customer happiness. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the, so so yes. Uh, very excited uh, to you know, looking forward to the book. Yeah. There's a, there's a Bunch of authors from across the globe have contributed. Yeah. Uh, so my my chapter is basically on uh, on cognitive dissonance. Uh, so I believe, and this is not, just not on consumer happiness; it's also on human happiness. Okay. I believe that one of the largest sources of of unhappiness is when your uh, your internal beliefs are not consistent with your external actions or your external beliefs. Interesting. Or, you know, so, yeah, and that's what we call as cognitive dissonance. Uh, so I, I uh, unfortunately, cognitive dissonance uh, got boiled down to uh, a very tight uh, uh, set of words called buyer's remorse, which is horrible because that's <laughs> what cognitive dissonance is. Cognitive dissonance, uh, as originated by Leon Festinger decades, decades ago, is a very powerful theory of understanding the human condition. Okay. And to my mind, so if I believe, for example, uh, if I believe I'm a very honest, truthful guy, that's what I strongly believe internally. Yeah. But I go and bribe somebody in the course of my work. Yeah. Uh, I'm forced to bribe somebody because uh, that's what uh, my organization wants me to do. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 this is a completely uh, yeah. theoretical example. Of course. Yeah. So what happens is that uh, I am going to be unhappy because two two opposing values have con have conflicted have have collided against each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, for example, when a brand says that we care for the environment and we care for carbon footprint, and that's what they put in their advertising, mm -hmm. right? But they all their executives guzzle uh, gallons of fuel, driving SUVs all across the world, and 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 flying jets all over the world, right? That's an inconsistent. Um, you know, Experience. kind of yeah. colliding, yeah. and that creates and that creates unhappiness, right? Okay. Now, so 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 that, that's so my chapter explores uh, the role that cognitive dissonance has mm. uh, in happiness and therefore experience. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, I will certainly be dying to it uh, to see it when it comes out, and um, and in fact, I've often talked about that whole thing about integrity. To me, that's uh, describing integrity and. I think the uh, the most important way to achieve customer loyalty is to start from a position of corporate integrity and obviously personal integrity. So, um, so no doubt, as I said, we could talk for hours on this topic, Anil. So that's all of the questions I have from my side. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we finish up? Uh, no, I think we've covered a fair we've covered, covered a fair bit. We've covered lots of lots of points, and I think uh, I hope it is it'll be useful for your audience for sure. Um, 
Yeah, I, th I think uh, we've, we've done a good job. For sure, absolutely. It's really hard to get so many different, varied topics, Anil, into one uh, coherent thing. So I, I'm really grateful for to you. Um, so yeah, from my side, as I said, we'll make sure to link to your uh, profile, obviously, and uh, both Teragni Consulting and, of course, BioBrain. So the two companies that you're director of, um, we'll make sure that um, all of our listeners have access to your um, various solutions. So um, with that said, I will lift Literally say, Dr. Anil Pillai from Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paula. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer, the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights, and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 170 executives in 20 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. For more information, check out thewisemarketeer.com and loyaltyacademy.org. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform, find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews and thanks again for supporting the show.